Merry Christmas. Has anyone said that to you already this year? Probably so, right? You say it right back. Merry Christmas. And this is the Christmas season. Of course, we're only a week and a half or so, I guess, about away from Christmas Day. And I hope your shopping is pretty well done by now. I don't know if it is or not. Everybody, I just want to see, a, just a show of hands. Finished, everyone who's finished, raise your hand. Totally finished, everything's squared away. Done. Um, who's not finished, that would be the rest of you. Um, I'm not finished either, but uh, Joy, my wife, she, she starts really, she, she's prepared. I mean, she's, there's one gift we have left to buy, one out of all of them. So we're almost finished. She would raise her hand and say she's finished. I would have to raise my hand and say, I'm not. Now, uh, some of you know, we have exciting things that are going on in the Melick household. My oldest son, Richard, is expecting him and my daughter-in-law, Eden, our first grandbaby, um, supposed to be Wednesday this coming week. Uh, she's going to be induced. I got a text last night from my younger son uh, who said, um, Eden's having contractions. They're going to go to the hospital. And so uh, that was like 11 o'clock at night. And so Joy and I were, you know, of course, on alert. Like, we got to pack the house. And I got to tell Danny's preaching tomorrow. And you know, it wasn't, uh, but fortunately, it was, what do you call it, Braxton Hicks? Was it the fake, fake ones? False start? That's what you call it in football. And um, yeah, she just had a false start. And so uh, she's, she's doing good, but um, Joy's been buying things for the baby, first grandbaby, granddaughter. I had two boys, two stinky old boys, turned into great men, but never had a daughter. This is a granddaughter. And so um, I'm gonna spoil her rotten. I have no qualms about that whatsoever. Uh, I'm not planning to tell her no ever. And um, she's, she's gonna have my heart from the second I see her. Now, Joy, she's been shopping for her and Joy likes the TJ Maxx. Joy's very, very, frugal when she purchases things. She's very careful with money, which is awesome. And um, she likes the TJ Maxx and yeah, she likes me to go to TJ Maxx. What do they say? You get the maximum value for the minimum price or something. There's my, I'm not sponsored by TJ Maxx, if any of you wonder. But uh, so she told me the other day, she said, hey, we need to go to TJ Maxx. And I said, no, you need to go to TJ Maxx because that doesn't sound like a we thing at all. So she played the trump card, which is it's for the baby. And uh, there we go. As a grandpa to be, I had to take joy to TJ Maxx. So I said, which TJ Maxx? And she said, I don't know. Now, for those of you who don't know TJ Maxx, there's like five of them. And um, Joy did not remember which of the TJ Maxx's that had the item for the baby she needed to purchase. So we went on the tour to TJ Maxx. Now the way we, it's not the first time we've done that, by the way, we've done the tour of TJ Maxx before. The way you do it, if you wanna know, I don't recommend it, you go all the way to West Des Moines if you live in this part of the, the city, and then you start there and you work your way back. And there are several of them. You can work your way back and almost always you'll find them uh, in Ankeny, right next to you know where we live. But we always start in West Des Moines. I'm sure if we started in Ankeny, we wouldn't find it until West Des Moines, it's the way it works. Now we're walking into a store and uh, it's windy. My wife has a one woman battle against the wind. She hates it, it's a personal thing, hates the wind. Um, she likes to talk and she was reminding me as we walked from the truck to TJ Maxx what I was supposed to be looking for in TJ Maxx, which was not part of my you know, plan at all. But she's talking and she's talking over the wind. She's talking loud and she's just talking, 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 talking. And I'm trying to listen, trying to listen. When you walk into a store, TJ Maxx, it's like you're walking into well, a different environment and you're loud and the wind is blowing and you're talking back and you're having a conversation and you walk through this little air gap and then you enter a different environment where nobody's talking loud at all, except my wife who didn't turn the volume down when we walked in to TJ Maxx. And so as we walked in, she's like, and you're going to look for, and she's yelling. And I was like, shh, 
everyone turned around and I'm like, the Melics are here. Yeah, but this is what they're looking for. Does anybody know where we go find the baby section? I said, don't talk so loud. When you go into a place, you know, you got to lower the volume. So she shot me a look. It was the very first look she ever gave me when we were dating. The one that said, I could kill you if I want to. <laughs> the one that made me fall in love with her. And I realized that overstepped my bounds there as a husband. But that whole, what are you yelling about? What's the big deal? Lower the volume. That's kind of the reception that Jesus got when he was born. There was this clamor of expectation, this talking back and forth. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? The Messiah, Christ the Lord. We need a Messiah. We want a Messiah. When's he going to come? 400 years of waiting from the time of Malachi until the time the angel came to Mary and to Joseph. 400 years of silence. The clamor continued, the clamor continued, and then all of a sudden when Jesus was born, there were only a few people still talking loud about it, and a whole bunch of people were like, lower the volume. What's the big deal? This can't be the Savior. This can't be Jesus, born to an unlikely couple in a really obscure town at a weird time in relative poverty. Not the savior we're looking for. Lower the volume. What's the big deal? Now, not everyone had that response. That's kind of the anticlimactic response that Jesus received. And in Ephesians, when we read the apostle Paul saying in the exact time, at the appropriate time, at the appointed time, God sent his son, Jesus, that changed everything. But not everyone got it. Not everyone saw it. Not everyone even thought they wanted it because it certainly wasn't what they expected. Now, you remember last week we talked about Christmas, what's the big deal, and uh, who needs it. And we talked about the story of Abraham receiving God's call and God saying to Abraham, I'm going to start in you or through you a new nation, a new people, my people, my nation. You're going to leave everything that you knew and you're going to go to something you don't know because you're following somebody you're getting to know and through your descendants, I'm going to do everything I've promised. And by the way, here's my promise. So we talked about 2000 years, more than 2000 years last week, all the way up to the story of Jesus. And now I want to talk to you about when Jesus entered the scene. I want to talk to you about it from a perspective that maybe you don't or haven't had at Christmas. If you've grown up in church like I have, or you've been around church, the Christmas story is probably one that's so familiar to you that maybe the significance or the meaning is sort of lost in the familiarity. From my earliest memories of Christmas, I remember the manger scene and Mary and Joseph and the wise men, the animals, hearing the story, listening to the events that happened that night so long ago. And I, I think sometimes maybe I, I don't quite get it. I don't quite celebrate it. That maybe my volume's not as loud as it should be. So I want us this morning to discuss that. And I want to convince you, if you're not already convinced, that you and I need Christmas. 
The Christmas story, an unbelievable story to many, an irrational story to those who are skeptical, an impossible story for those who struggle with faith. But yet true, the story that changed everything. So let's look together at this retelling of the story from Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now here's where I want you to start internalizing or thinking about these events, okay? Right now, the, the, these guys, Mary, Joseph, the, all the people who were hearing this, who were experiencing this, they'd never read the story before. They didn't know how it was gonna end. They didn't have the script. These are people who are doing this for the first time. So you have an engaged couple. You have a young couple. The girl, Mary, much younger than the groom-to-be, Joseph. Engaged to be married. Pledged that they'd spend the rest of their lives together. Promised that they would be separate from each other physically or separate from anyone else physically until the marriage itself was consummated and they began their life together. There were, well, there was a lot that hung in the balance of this promise or this covenant. There was the honor of a man who'd extended his family name to marry a woman and invite her to be part of his father's household. There were financial obligations and contracts that had been extended. There was face to save. There was a reputation at stake. And you have a young woman who began to tell an impossible story without a supernatural cause that would have been really difficult for people to believe. And you have a man who had to choose to believe his wife, who some no doubt thought were crazy. And some thought maybe just trying to explain something away that shouldn't have happened in the first place. But yet he too chose to have faith. And I wonder what it was like to go through these emotions, to hear these things, to feel these things, to have them impact you deeply and have to make decisions that not only reflect on you, but everyone you know. Just people like you and I, chosen by God to be involved in the event that changed the world. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And this again would have been a really difficult concept, obviously to grasp, right? Now an angel's talking to you, and so obviously if you're convinced that it's an angel and you're convinced that it's a messenger from God, it would certainly be easier to remember. But this whole idea that Mary was conceiving, that she was pregnant, that it was an immaculate conception, it was from God, the Father, and he had allowed this to happen, and it was just a, a thing that would have blown your mind. But yet here he is walking through this and embracing this. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what she's conceived is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, 
I want us to work through this together. And I want to talk to you about the significance of this message. And I want you to feel it, embrace it, experience it, just like you were there as an actor, as part of this so many years ago. What did it feel like? What kind of faith would it have taken? How would this have changed your life? How would you have responded to the birth of Jesus Christ? Let's look at this together, just the name Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, because this was confusing. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Jesus the Messiah is a term or a phrase that we should discuss just a little bit, and I don't want to confuse you with details, but Messiah is a word that you may have heard a bunch. Now, I don't know what faith tradition each of you grew up in. Some of you probably didn't grow up in any faith tradition, and maybe the name Jesus is foreign or or unfamiliar to you, but some people grew up calling Jesus, Jesus Christ. Some called him Jesus the Messiah. Some Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some Emmanuel, all kinds of different names, whatever church you went to, your pastor may have referred to him familiarly familiarly with familiarity uh, in one particular way. And so you may have gotten used to it, but Messiah was an important word. Messiah was a word that was a, a Hebrew word. And actually the Hebrew word was translated into Greek. There were two different languages the Bible was written in. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek, two different languages. And so the word, when they translated the word Messiah from Hebrew into Greek, it became the word Christ, which means the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who's going to come and to pay the penalty or the price for our sins. Now the significance is the Messiah Messiah is the one who'd been prophesied about for so many years. The Messiah was the one they were looking for. The Messiah was the one who was born on Christmas Day. Now the word Jesus, and by the way, Christ, the anointed one, some people you know, get a little mixed up and feel like that that's sort of a family name for Jesus that maybe it's his last name, right? Like it was Mary and Joseph Christ and that Jesus was born and that Jesus Christ was just kind of a a family name and passed down. And, you know, I I get it. I mean, that's that's the natural way to to process this and to read it if you didn't didn't know better or, or weren't told. But the significance is that the word Jesus or the name Jesus followed by Messiah or Christ points back to Jesus saying, this is who God promised This is the one. This is the one who's going to pay the price for our sins. Now, the word Jesus itself is an interesting word. And Joseph was told to call his son Jesus, to name his son Jesus. And Jesus is a translation, again, of an Old Testament name, a Hebrew name. And that's the name for Joshua. Now, I want to help you understand that the Jews at this point in their life were looking for a couple of things. The Jewish people. They were looking for freedom. They were looking for financial independence. They were looking for an overthrow of the government that they were around. They were looking for a leader who was going to be the kind of leader who would finally deliver their people from slavery once and for all. So the name Jesus, a translation of the Old Testament name for Joshua, was a reference back to the Joshua of the Old Testament, even though two totally different people. And when Joseph was told to name his son Jesus, it would have immediately triggered in him the optimism that maybe they were going to get the kind of leader that they were looking for. Because Joshua followed Moses, and Joshua followed Moses, who was a lawgiver. Joshua was known to be more of a warrior. 
he was a king or a ruler or a leader, probably a leader is a better word for him, with a sword and, and delivered the people through battles that were mind-boggling. Now, interesting enough, this is just a fun fact that you can put in your pocket, maybe pull it out again when we talk about this story, but the first battle that we see Joshua fighting was a battle where Moses was watching and Moses was praying for him because it was an important battle after going into Canaan to make sure that, you know, the, the, the children of Israel could inhabit this land that God had promised. And Moses would raise his hands and he would pray, which is great, right? He was an old man by that time. And, you know, he'd be like, all right, I'm losing the circulation in my hands, but I'm praying. When his hands were up and he was praying, Joshua and all his soldiers were winning. And then Moses would be like, whew, you know, and, and when he put his hands down, then they'd start losing. And I don't know how long it took before he got it, like up, down, up. I'd be like this way, that way and see what, no. And he finally realized it. So he had two friends who stood beside him, Moses, each grabbing an arm and lifted Moses' arms in the air so that as Moses was praying with his hands in the air, Joshua won the battle. Joshua was known to be a mighty warrior, but somebody who God the Father gave the power to do all of the heavy lifting. One of the biggest battles that Joshua was known for wasn't even a battle at all. It was when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Do you remember the story of the battle of Jericho? When they were going to fight the battle of Jericho, they were supposed to fight and Joshua was ready, sharpening the sword and polishing the shield and getting everybody ready. And then he was told that all he's supposed to do is march around the city. Don't do anything but march around a set number of times and then get the musicians of all people to blow the trumpet and the walls fell down. So Joshua was known as a warrior leader, not a lawgiver, but he was somebody who immediately would have brought to mind the kind of military, the kind of political stability and power that they were looking for. So even Joseph would have been tracking. Name him Jesus. Yeah, right on. But it was a little bit of a different plan. It was a little bit of a, of a different program. Let's keep looking at this together. In Matthew 1, 21, we see that she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. We're tracking. And then in this last part, well, most people weren't tracking quite so much. The Bible doesn't say Jesus will save the people from the government, from the oppression, from the financial insecurity. It says Jesus will save the people from their sins. Because this is what the Messiah, the Christ, had been sent to do. Now, here's the problem. The noise that was going on in the anticipation of a deliverer quieted to a hushed whisper because what many of the people were looking for, they didn't get. The people had needs and the needs that they had, well, forgiveness of sin or specifically forgiveness from sin, it wasn't high on their list. They wanted forgiveness from other people's sins. 
They wanted deliverance from other people's infractions. They wanted an oversight of their own sin, but they wanted justice. So there was a rising action. You're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to deliver his people. And then there was a falling action from their sins. If you remember back in psychology or whatever class, maybe you experienced this. There was another Abraham. His name was Abraham Maslow, and he had a hierarchy of needs. You remember this? This takes you way back to high school. I don't know. Nowadays, it may be elementary school because these kids do stuff that in sixth grade that I did in college uh, now, but but there was this hierarchy of needs and forgiveness of sin or forgiveness from sin is nowhere on this hierarchy of needs, but this is what the people we're thinking about. Now, the problem is, as we internalize this, as we walk through this together, is this oftentimes is what you and I are thinking about as well. We, we think about physiological needs, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing. We think about safety. And these people back in this first century, they really were only living these first two levels of this pyramid. And so when they were offered forgiveness from their sins, it gave them pause because it's not quite what they expected or what they were looking for. But it was the most significant, most important thing that could be offered to someone. Forgiveness from their sins. I want to talk to you about a story very quickly that illustrates this. And I hope it really drives home the significance of the meaning of Christmas. This is currently my favorite story of Jesus in the entire New Testament. That doesn't necessarily mean anything to you. Um, You can have your own favorite stories. I hope you do. I have two favorite stories currently. My first one is this one. My second one is where Jesus turns the water into the wine at the wedding. And it's not really the wine part more than it is just the whole wedding part. It's just an awesome story. But this one here, it's got my heart. I want to walk you through it. We've talked about this thing so many times together as as a church family. I'm going to take you to the end. And that end is where I want to drive the point home. But I don't want to skip just to the end. I want to work through the whole thing. This is obviously later in Jesus' life after he began his ministry, after he began to share what the kingdom of God was all about as he began this redemptive work. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd had gathered, so he sat down to teach them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, now I want to stop at that point right there. When Jesus said that he was offering forgiveness from sins, the people, especially the religious leaders, the ones who felt like they had sort of a lock on this whole relationship with God would have said, we already have all that taken care of. We know how to be forgiven of sins. We have a whole process. It's got like seven or eight steps. It involves some sacrifices. It involves a little bit of money. It involves a lot of ritual and repetition. We even have a whole building, a whole building and complex that we've built us and set aside for this. And these people had put themselves in the place of God, many of them by this point, and would look at the crowds and say, you don't fit. You don't belong. Maybe you, I'm not sure. They'd look into your background. They'd see who your people are, what kind of dirt they could dig up on you, 
We're more interested in dividing and separating the herd and just allowing a few elite in and making everyone else realize that they didn't belong, that they weren't good at God, that they weren't good enough for God. And they held it in a clenched fist, many of them. And as Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, they brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is me resisting the urge to dive into this and teach this passage this morning because that's not why we're here. I love it. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. We don't know what he wrote because it's none of anybody's business. It's the beautiful part of Jesus. It's personal. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. I guess what he wrote, I don't know. You can guess too. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. Can you imagine what it would be like to be this woman? Have you ever felt alone in the middle of a crowd? Have you ever felt judged by others? Have you ever felt judged by yourself? Have you ever felt unworthy? Have you ever felt unlovable? Jesus was left in the middle of a crowd with this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she said, no. Now, I wanna ask you, what are you ashamed of? Um, You and I are human. Is that news to you? I hope not. Sometimes we don't act like it. Sometimes we try to impress the people who are around us. Matter of fact, impression management becomes a whole lot more important than just being genuine and real. And I've done what I do long enough to know that every single one of you out there, myself included, has stuff we wish we hadn't done and things we wish we haven't had to deal with. Every person has regret. Every person has shame. Every person has guilt. What is it that you carry with you? The one decision you could go back and unmake. The one thing about you that you would change if there was anything you could do to change it. The reason you would condemn yourself if you were God. and the reason you're pretty sure other people would condemn you. I want you to see what Jesus says. 
Because friends, this is what it looks like to be freed from a life of sin, to be forgiven from a life of sin. Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you. You go and sin no more. Can you imagine hearing that? Jesus looking you in the face right now and telling you, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I'm God. I'm the one you've sinned against. I'm the one who has more reason to take it personal than anybody else. And I don't condemn you. In fact, I forgive you. And then he says something. It points us right back to that promise in Matthew chapter 1. Go and sin no more. And you say, how in the world could I live a life where I go and sin no more? Don't you know me? I don't have to follow you around. You follow me around. Me talk to your husband or wife. Me read your emails or check your social media or watch how you drive to know we still sin. But the power here is that we can go and choose to live a life free from being trapped in sin. The Apostle Paul points back to Jesus as he often does. I'm pointing to him right now as he explains this in Romans 6. He says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself. Do you see this? Offer yourself. Here I am, God, the bad, the good, all of me, you know it. I can't play games with you anymore. I can't hide. Here I am. I offer myself to you. As those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under law but now you're under grace. Brought to us, made available to us by the one who would say to us, I don't condemn you. Forgiveness and freedom is found through Jesus Christ. Do you see the good news of Christmas? That the people wanted something else. They just wanted their lives to get easier. Now I get it, right? That's one of the most basic human needs. We just want things to get easier. And God said, I love you so much that I'm not going to give you what you're asking me for. I'm going to give you what you need and what you need will set you free. Sin no longer has to be your master. We're not talking about just being forgiven of our sins. He's talking about being forgiven from sin. We don't have to be a slave to the things that we're the most ashamed of. Anger, gossip, bitterness. I don't have to be a slave to unforgiveness. I don't have to be a slave to materialism. I don't have to be a slave to addiction. I don't have to be a slave 
to sin because Jesus freed me if I accept this free gift of eternal life made possible by the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. So even though back in that day, in that unlikely place at that weird time in history, to a couple of plain folks just like you and me, this baby was born. Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. It's a miracle. Nobody can explain it. God certainly can. He caused it. Jesus grew up and lived a life without sin. Not one sin. Never sinned. And that was necessary because of all the sins that you and I have committed. The offenses that we've committed against God. If we've committed one, we may as well have committed a million thoughts, actions, attitudes, displeasing to the Lord. And Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could take on all of our junk. The things that may have come to mind when I ask you, what are you ashamed of? Why you would condemn yourself? That he took these things on and died for them. so that you and I didn't have to. And we know the story. We celebrated at Easter. He didn't stay dead. That Jesus rose again three days later, defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all, so that anyone who believes in him, who, and this is important because this, friends, is how you become a child of God. This is how you become a follower, a Christ follower. It's a simple commitment, a decision where you take yourself and you say, God, I am sorry for sinning and failing. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Now, that's between you and the Lord. You do it in your mind. You do it out loud. It doesn't matter. God's created in you the ability to communicate with him with your thoughts. He hears you. He knows. And you tell him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me for my sins. And he says, you're forgiven. I don't condemn you. We say, I believe who you are. As much as I know, I believe. I believe who Jesus is. I believe that he came born with lived a perfect life and died a death he didn't deserve and rose again. And even though it's hard to believe, I believe it. And I know that's how I can be forgiven of sins. And we tell God, I believe it. And then we say, I want to live this life free from sin. I want to live for you, God. I want to be your child. I want to be your follower. And you tell him this, you tell him in your own words, you tell him in your own way. And when you do, you make the gift given at Christmas a reality for you. You make the Christmas story real. And I hope that there may be some in here today who make the decision to do this because friends, being free, freed, from the power that sin has over us, not only gives us a hope and a meaning and significance in this life, but gives us the promise of heaven to come and the life beyond. So Christmas, who needs it? Man, we do. Father, thank you for my friends.